Well, it is a, a, a fearful thing to uh, stand in the pulpit after we've read um, uh, Galatians 1. I pray that the Lord will be with me, and I thank you for the privilege uh, to Stephen and the elders uh, that allowed me to speak to you today. We're going to be um, preaching from uh, Ruth chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 5, but we'll read the whole chapter. So Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in a country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Limelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Chilion. There were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, in Judah uh, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Marlon and Killian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law, and returned to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she sent out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went to, on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they went to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, uh, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should have a hope, even if I should have a husband this night, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me uh, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where I go, uh, for where you go, I will go. And where you will lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, 
for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Then the Lord has, uh, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought this calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Amen. So as Stephen mentioned uh, last week, I've been given the opportunity to um, preach um, a series through Ruth, um, which is going to be over an extended period. Uh, But as this is the uh, uh, introductory sermon, as it were, um, I'm just going to give you a quick, brief overview of the book of Ruth, uh, at least the first uh, few chapters. Uh, So this is a, a historical book. Uh, which means that it describes uh, actual real events uh, with real people. Uh, And uh, this is just a small part of the uh, redemptive history of the Bible that goes right back to uh, those first days, those first chapters in in Genesis, uh, where men and women uh, rebelled against God and um, uh, the promise of this great seed of the woman that would come, uh, Jesus Christ. Um, so it fits into the historical narrative, and we see, as we'll see shortly, this comes towards the end of the period of the judges before uh, the kings uh, ruled Israel. But not only is it historical narrative, it is also uh, typological. Um, and what this means is that, that through this story, we see a representation uh, of uh, Jesus Christ himself. And we see this all through uh, uh, redemptive history, all through the scriptures is these uh, types of Jesus Christ that describe something of his work or something of his nature. And we see this uh, here uh, in uh, this book. Uh, So uh, the narrative of this book is, as we've read in our first chapter, that we see uh, this family, uh, Elimelech and his wife and his two sons, uh, and they leave the land of Judah um, and as I hope I'm going to be demonstrating that that was an act of, of faithlessness, leaving uh, Israel and going uh, to Moab, uh, there it seems disaster strikes uh, to Elimelech. He loses his own life and the life of his two sons, and therefore his name is cut off uh, from Israel. Uh, we see later God brings uh, redemption. Um, but... Um, but we, we then meet this, this, um, this, this young lady, Ruth, uh, who, is, um, who is a Moabite woman, not part of the, the covenant people of God. Uh, and, uh, and, and she clings to Naomi. Uh, as Naomi says, I'm going back to my own land, and we see this, this act of, of love on behalf of Ruth that she clings uh, to uh, Naomi. And they go back to the land uh, of uh, Judah, the land of Israel. And then God brings uh, this, this man into Ruth's life, this uh, described as a kingsman redeemer, this man called Boaz, uh, who can redeem the name of Elimelech that has been uh, lost. Uh, and uh, and this, this kinsman redeemer uh, is, is the type of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he's, he's a redeemer in the sense that he can redeem this man's uh, name. And from Elimelech, we see that King David comes through the line of Elimelech and, and then ultimately Jesus Christ. This man redeems uh, uh, this, uh, this, this family. But he's also uh, a kinsman. It means that he is close 
uh, to, to, to the, uh, the family of Elimelech means that he's able to, to redeem uh, this family. Uh, according to, uh, to the law, it needed to be a close family member who could redeem them. And we see this is, uh, is a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he, he is a kinsman, that he came down and he, he took on human form, he took on human nature and redeemed humanity. So this story, although it's a narrative, although it fits into the, the broader picture, we also see these types of Christ. And this should encourage us with, with the word of God that, that this is not the work of a man. Yes, it was written over many centuries and written by many different people, but it all speaks of the same glorious story. It always speaks of the same glorious saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, it is peerless amongst the works of, uh, of the other religions. We, we get asked on the streets as we preach, why should we believe the Bible and not the Quran or some other religious book? And it's obviously, it, it, it's, it's too difficult to explain to them because they don't want to listen. But, but we know that when we read this book that it, that it's peerless, that it speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and it can only be a work of God. Uh, so what a privilege it is to be people of the book, to people who... Uh, who this is our food, that we can go to this book and we can read the very uh, words of God. And this, this grace of God, this redemption of God, is always seen, it's always shown in the scripture against the, the backdrop of man's depravity. And that is when it's seen more glorious. You've probably heard the, the example when you go to a jeweler's and he shows you a diamond. He doesn't just put it on a table in front of him, but he puts a black cloth under the table and then puts a diamond on it so you can see the beauty and the majesty of the diamond more clearly against the backdrop. And, and I think, I believe that this story starts off in that sense. We see the depravity of man. And therefore, as the story continues, and hopefully I will be able to explain that as this, as this series continues, the, the glory and the majesty of what God has done in his act of redemption. So we look at the context of, of, of Ruth, uh, and as I said, it, it comes in the time of the judges. It says that for us clearly uh, in verse 1. Uh, it doesn't specify exactly whereabouts uh, in this period of the judges, which lasted several centuries. But if we look at the, uh, the last uh, chapter, we see uh, right at the end there that it gives a, uh, a list of generations uh, from uh, from Elimelech up to King David. And we know that King David was one of the early kings. He was the, the second king to rule. So we can surmise from that that this come towards the end of the period uh, of the judges. Uh, the judges, if you're aware with, with, uh, with that book, you'll know that it, it goes through a period of declension and then revival. We see men uh, turning away from the law of God, turning away from God to worship idols. Uh, and the, the, the Lord sends um, even natural disasters, or, or generally in the case of the judges, he sends enemies or the nations to come. Uh, and to, uh, to suppress the people as, as a judgment, and the people cry out to God. And God hears their cries, he hears the cries of the people, and, and he raises up a man, a judge, who then defeats the enemies and brings the people back to the true worship uh, of God. And we see this uh, period of declension where the judges are alive, the people are righteous, and then when he dies, the people go back into uh, their uh, idolatry. Uh, and 
we see here uh, in the opening uh, verses that there is a famine in the land. It says that there's a famine in the land. And when we think about famine in regards to God's uh, covenant people, our minds probably cast back to that great sermon, Deuteronomy, and particularly Deuteronomy uh, 28, that, that Moses uh, preaches to the people before he is about to die himself, or uh, God is about to take his life, and the people are about to enter uh, the promised land. And there in, in Deuteronomy 28, uh, after Moses has given the law, he says that, that if you obey the law, these are the blessings that you can expect from God. And we've been doing the covenant theology with Stephen, and we, we've heard something uh, about what the covenant consists of, that there's covenant blessings if we're obedient to God. And verse um, 28, verse 1 says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, be careful to do all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Verse 3 says, Blessed shall you be in the field. Verse 4, Blessed shall be the fruit of your ground. Verse 5, Blessed shall be the basket of your kneading bowl. Verse 8, Blessed be on your barns. Uh, Verse 12, The Lord will open the heavens and give rain. Promises from the Lord for covenant obedience. But in verse uh, 15, uh, Moses goes on to say, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Verse 16, cursed in your field. Verse 17, cursed in the kneading bolts. Verse 18, cursed shall be the fruit of your ground. Verse 22, the Lord will bring drought. Verse 23, the heavens shall be like bronze and the ground like iron. Verse 24, the Lord will make dust come down instead of rain. And we see these uh, curses uh, are administered to the people of God as they, uh, as they rebel against God. We see it through the period of the kings in 2 Samuel 21.1. There was a famine in the, t- in the time of David. King Saul had done something wicked and God had sent uh, a famine in the land. And David recognized when he saw this famine and cried out to God, what must we do uh, to uh, escape this judgment? Uh, 2 Samuel 24:13. there was another uh, famine in the day of David, and this was due to his own sin of numbering the people. Um, 1 Kings 17, 1, uh, Elijah prays that there will be no rain. God actually tells one of his uh, prophets to, to pray that there will be no rain as a judgment uh, upon the people. We see here uh, throughout the redemptive history uh, that God enacts these curses that he promised he would, that people if their people disobeyed. And we see here a famine in the land. This is not some circumstantial event. It's not like today when we see famine in the land, which we know everything is in God's sovereign control, but it may not be necessarily a disobedience of that land. But here we know because God promised that there would be blessings for those that obeyed and curses for those that didn't obey, we can be assured that this famine here was due to the disobedience of the people of Israel at that time. So this is the context, and I want to look at three things. I want us to do an examination of the life of Elimelech. Secondly, I want to uh, consider uh, how this relates to ourselves. And finally, uh, some points of application. So let us examine uh, Elimelech. So when uh, Elimelech is, is introduced, things are looking quite positive at first. He's from Bethlehem, Judah. 
which is a city of two great kings, as we know, the King David, who was a descendant, and ultimately the great king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came from the same line, both born uh, in Bethlehem. He was from the tribe of Ephraim, or uh, this speaking being um, an Ephraim, I'll say this word, an Ephraite, um, is, uh, could potentially mean that he was an, an outstanding member or, or a, 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 an elder in, in the community. The, the commentators are not sure. Uh, and, uh, and finally, uh, his actual name, Elimelech itself, El Malak, meaning God is king. We would surely think, as we read this text, that, that this was a man uh, who it like described of the men of Issachar, who knew the times and knew what to do. Surely this was a man who knew the times, knew that this famine was, was because of the disobedience of the people of Israel, and he, and he knew what to do. But before his, even, his name is even mentioned, we find out that instead of standing faithfully, instead of knowing what to do in a time of unfaithfulness, He takes matters into his own hands and he flees uh, to Moab. Now, moving countries in the ancient Near East is not like we do today for a job or for a family or for for whatever reason. You see, the land in, in the ancient Near East, in the time of Israel, the land was associated with a people and the people were associated with a God. We see that in our text in verse uh, 16. Uh, But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. She recognized, Ruth recognized that leaving that land is not just going to another place, but she's leaving behind her people. And she's leaving behind her God to entrust herself unto Yahweh, uh, the covenant God of Israel. But Elimelech was turning his back on the God of Israel and putting his trust, his protection under the God of Moab, Chemosh, the evil God. The, 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 the Bible describes this, this God, as, as, an, as an evil entity. And we know Paul even describes the, the gods of the false gods of foreign nations as, as demons. It is tantamount to saying to God, I don't trust you to deliver me or to deliver this people and to turn to the false gods of other nations. So let us examine Elimelech's character and see if there's anything there that can give us a clue to why he made this fateful decision. It's a bit difficult to examine the character of Elimelech seen as he's introduced in verse 2 and by verse 3 he's dead. Uh, well, there's two things we can, uh, we can tell about this man. The first is, as I've already described, is a fateful decision to leave the land of Israel and to go to Moab. But we also see another decision that he makes, in fact two decisions, the naming of his two sons, uh, Marlon and Killian. Marlon means to grow weak and fall sick, and Killian means to perish and fade away. Are these the names that you would give to your sons if you are a faithful, strong man of Israel. Naming children is, in our day is different. We pick a name that other people like, a popular name, a name that we like. But in that day, names meant something, as did Elimelech's name. And this was probably, he named his sons during a period of declension, maybe, and things were bad. 
And again, rather than turning to God, rather than being a man who knew the times and knew what to do, he named his sons these names, grow weak, fall sick, to perish, fade away. He was a faithless man. Therefore, is it any surprise that we see that he makes a faithless decision? There is a further indictment against uh, Elimelech, and that is uh, Bethlehem, as, as we may know, is just uh, below uh, Jerusalem, and then above Jerusalem up to the, to the east is, is Jericho. So the way that he would have travelled to Moab, which is on the other side, uh, which, is, which is to the east, uh, on the other side of the Dead Sea, uh, he would have had to have gone through Jerusalem, Jericho, across uh, the Jordan, and then down into Moab. And we may remember the story that there was another journey that went in the opposite direction. And that was when Joshua was taking the people of Israel into the land, into the promised land, to get the land that God promised. And we may remember the story that, that like Moses parted the Red Sea, that the Jordan was parted uh, for uh, Joshua. And the priest stood there with the ark in the, in the middle of the, uh, the river. And the people crossed over. And then he said to the priest, said, pick up a stone, 12 stones, uh, and put them on the side of the bank as a memorial that our God is faithful to his promises. And it is these very stones that more than likely Elimelech would have had to have passed by as he was making the unfaithful decision to go from Judah to uh, Moab. These stones should have been a reminder. He should have seen those stones and it should have caused him to think, what am I doing? Why am I turning away from the covenant God who has made these glorious promises to his people? Why am I going to put my trust in Moab? Why am I leaving the promised land and going back, as it were, almost to the desert? And this is, these stones are like what scripture is for us today. Because we know our, our feeble frames, we know what we are like, and we know the decisions that we can make, and we can sometimes make faithless decisions. And this is why we need to be in scripture, we read about the promises, we read about who God is. We read that we can trust God, and this should cause us to turn away from our faithlessness and turn once again to trusting in the eternal God. This was an indictment against Elimelech that he saw these stones and yet carried on his journey to Moab. And in that land we read what happened to Elimelech, he died, so did his sons, and it would seem that his name was cut off uh, from Israel. Ultimately, this name, though he may not have known it at the time, was going to come King David and ultimately uh, the Messiah. Elimelech's name would have been wiped off of, of the earth. Well, this is not the real tragedy. You see, the, the real tragedy is that he is stealing glory from God. Imagine what the Moabites thought, who were on the, uh, the, uh, probably the border there of Moab, and they would have seen this, this man coming from, from Israel and, and coming to put his trust in their God. Imagine what those people thought about the God of, of Israel. A God who in sometimes past during, the, during the, the judges had delivered his people from Moabite oppression. What would they have thought of, of, of the God of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, when they saw people fleeing from that God that ultimately saying, we cannot trust this God. Imagine what the people of God themselves thought 
as they saw Elimelech. Remember, I said that he was potentially an elder of of the town uh, in which he lived there in in Bethlehem. Imagine what the the people of Bethlehem and the people of of Judah uh, uh, would have seen as this man passed with, with his family leaving because he could not trust the covenant God of Israel. Imagine what that did to the the hearts of those uh, that remained. Faithlessness brings a reproach on God amongst the heathen. And it brings a reproach on God amongst the saints. And further to that tragedy is that this man missed an opportunity. Ezekiel 22.30 says, The Lord speaking. And I sought for a man among them who would build up the walls and stand in the breach before me in the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. See, the Lord is, is speaking to himself and he's saying that, that, he, that he, seeks, he seeks, that he, that, he, that he sought for a man. And we, we know that God is sovereign and we know that God knows all things, but, but the, the God describes himself as seeking for a man. Who could build up the walls? Who could stand in the breach? You see, there was was a breach in Israel. There'd been been unfaithfulness. The walls were down. This is why God had brought his judgment upon the people. And he sought for a man amongst them who could build up the walls. Who could stand in the breach? We read in Judges 2.18. Whenever the Lord raises up judges for them, The Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judges. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. The Lord raised up judges. He sought for a man and he found found, uh, those men in many parts of, of this period of history. He found judges who he would raise up, who would build up the walls who would block the breaches, who would bring the the covenant people of God back uh, to their God. But what does it say about the Lord? When when he seeks for a man, that the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings. The Lord was moved to pity. You see, there could have been all sorts of things going on, people saying all sorts of things in Israel. And it could be to us, I suppose, if we were looking down to try and find a period, it could just be white noise. Just a lot of clamor, a lot of people saying this and that. But when there was someone crying out for mercy, it could be just the weakest of cries that no one else would hear. But God's ears, as soon as he hears that weak cry, as soon as he hears that person groaning because of the situation, because of the desperate state of the people, because they've rebelled against their God, his ears hear it through all the clamor. And, and, and does he look at that and think, well, look at all the sins you've done. Look, look, at, look at your unfaithfulness. No, he's moved by pity. The Lord is seeking for a man. And Elimelech could have been this man who looking around him, seeing this famine, seeing the judgment of God, could have just in his own heart been grieved and just locked up to God. That's, that's, 
We don't need elaborate prayers. We'd need to have gone through some uh, elaborate uh, uh, a system which was grieved in their hearts and my mind's just reminding me of that Ezekiel. I think it might be Ezekiel 9. He says that he looks at people whose hearts are broken. Those are the righteous. Those hearts are broken by the sin that they see around them. Elimelech could have been this man. Now we know there is situations where God says to a nation, and even to his own people, he says that you've sinned. And judgment is coming, and there is nothing that you can do. There is no crying out to me. There is no asking for forgiveness. We we see that through scripture, and and his people, the northern kingdom, get taken into exile by the Assyrians, and and Judah get taken into uh, exile. uh, exiled by the, the, Babylons, the Babylonians. But even in those times, Psalm 37, 18 says, The Lord knows the day of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever, and they are not put to shame in evil times, and in the days of famine they have abundance. Even if God would not have heard his cries to deliver the people, the faithless people, that he himself and his family could have been delivered. God can deliver those around him. We think of the story of Jeremiah, who was at that time during the Babylonian uh, invasion of the land. And yet God preserved that man and preserved a remnant. Ezekiel 14, 13 to 14 says, Son of man, when a land sins against you by acting faithlessly, I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut it off, uh, cut off man and beast. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel and Job, are in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord. So we see, even if God had determined to judge the whole of this nation, these men... Elimelech, if he was a faithful man, could have been delivered. And we think of the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego uh, as uh, in that that, uh, Babylonian captivity. And we think about their faithful stand that they made uh, before the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And what are the words of Nebuchadnezzar when, when God miraculously delivers these three men? Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and delivered his servant, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except our own god. Therefore make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses shall be in ruin, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have, could have reasoned like this. We are men of influence in this great nation. Uh, there were some of the satraps of, of that kingdom. And if we just do this one thing, this one act of faithfulness, then we can, we can, um, you know, we can, we can change this nation. We can, we can work for God. Well, that's not how they thought. It was faithfulness to the God of Israel. And what did God do? God showed himself to the most powerful man on the earth at that time, who confessed with his own mouth, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. So what can we learn well, I want us to consider this 
uh, mental picture. And I want us to think of the timeline of our lives from the moment we were saved to the moment that we go to be with God in glory. And we, we think about this timeline, and, and, and on this timeline, God has given us all tasks and, and jobs to do, uh, aspects of, of the ministry maybe uh, that he has given to us, and we can think of those scattered throughout that timeline. But if we've been a Christian for anything more than five minutes, then we recognise that that's not the only thing that's on that timeline, but there is bumps, there's hills and there's mountains that seem to get in our way and stop us from fulfilling uh, those uh, jobs that God has given us to do. Now we make a mistake if we see these as inconveniences, if we see these as something that we just need to get around, get on the other side. And this is potentially what Elimelech saw, he just saw this as, as a, an inconvenience that there is uh, no food in the land. Well, go and live in, in, in Moab, it said he, he only went to sojourn there and he could come back once uh, for, uh, they, they had food. Uh, well there's two problems with this. Uh, the first is that God doesn't actually need us on the other side of that mountain. God is quite capable of taking care of the things that he has given us to do. God is sovereign. These mountains are part of God's sovereign plan. God doesn't need us on the other side of the mountain, however much we think God needs us on the other side of that mountain. And two, God God is is, uh, sovereign in ordaining these circumstances that we may have opportunities to see the glory of God manifest, the power of God, the faithfulness of God manifest through the removing of these mountains. You see, the, the, the task of, of a Christian, uh, sorry, uh, the, uh, the completing of these, these tasks that God has given us to do uh, is, is our faithfulness to God. God has given us a task, we do it. It's our faithfulness, a demonstration of our faithfulness to God. But God overcoming these mountains in, 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 the, in our way, in the path, is a demonstration of his faithfulness to us. And the focus of a faithful Christian life is not so much that we demonstrate our faithfulness to God, but we leave room that God can demonstrate his faithfulness to us. That people, that the heathen, that other Christians can say, like King Nebuchadnezzar, there is no God in heaven like the God of this people, this covenant people. So are we going to be like Elimelech, who was given a task to protect his family and to propagate his name? These are things that he, that he should do as, as, a, as a good man of God. He should protect his family. He should be propagating uh, that name. But sees a famine as, a, as an obstacle and circumnavigates it, missing the opportunity to see God's faithfulness, not only in his own life, but to demonstrate it to others. And ultimately we see that these two tasks that he gave to protect his family and to propagate his name, he utterly failed in any way. It's God who had to come and redeem him. Or are we like Jesus Christ, who came to glorify the Father? But everyone around him saw the cross as Jesus Christ as an obstacle in his way. Remember Peter saying, how, how, don't go to the cross, may, may it never be. And Jesus Christ, what did he say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You see, the cross was not, to Jesus Christ, was not something to be circumnavigated. But it is a place where the glory and the faithfulness of God will be demonstrated 
the full manifest glory of Jesus Christ was demonstrated on the cross of Jesus Christ. And the path that we take has consequences. We have opportunities when we see these obstacles in our lives. We have opportunities whether we take the faithful path and wait for God's faithfulness or whether we take the path of faithlessness, believing that God can't deliver us and we need to deliver ourselves. But we see in the case of Elimelech, in the name of his sons, that faithlessness leads to more faithlessness and leads to faithless actions and doesn't allow God to demonstrate his faithfulness. But faithful living does the absolute opposite. Faithful living, as we we faithfully trust God, we see God moving, we see God moving in our lives, and as people live around us faithfully, we see God moving in their lives, and it increases our faithfulness. So that the mountains that we face, they will get bigger and bigger, or they should get bigger and bigger through our lives. And and, and when we see those those mountains getting bigger and bigger, we, we look back. And we see how God has been faithful to us before. And we know that God can deal with this mountain that is in in front of us. And we think in our day of the mountains that face us, not only in our own lives, but in the lives uh, of the church and in the lives of uh, uh, this nation. And these Mountains are true mountains, are they not? When we think about what happens happening in our nation, think about what they're teaching, the false philosophies and ideologies that are teaching to our children. We think of uh, the sexual immorality, think of abortion. These are megalithic structures that the devil himself has been building for 50, 60 years, and even, even further back from that. How are we going to? Uh, how are we going to stand before these structures and believe that our God? How are we going to pray against these things and believe that our God is going to bring these crashing down like the walls of Jericho? If we have not allowed God opportunities in our lives to show His faithfulness to us, so let's finally move on to application. So it's difficult to take this and apply it to the circumstances of our lives because they're so varied Uh, but I think there is a couple of principles that we can consider Uh, and we sung a hymn just before I I got up to preach be still uh, and know that I am God and I think there is a lot of wisdom in that I think we need to be still we need to make peace with our situation and we need to embrace it as an opportunity to glorify God We need to be still and thank God for his providence, that in his providence he has brought this into our life. We need to be still and pray that God's power will be manifest through his faithful provision. Not only uh, for us on this side of the mountain, but also for the provision of those things that he has given us. And also for the removing of this obstacle, whether he moves it completely or gives us a power to overcome it. And does this mean that there should be no activity at all? Well, it doesn't mean that, I believe. 
There's, there's aspects of this mountain moving that we can do and there's aspects that only God can do. And we need wisdom in each circumstance and situation. We need wisdom from God to know what is our part and what is God's part. And God says, he promises us in James that if we ask for wisdom, that he will give us wisdom. And then we need to act where we are able. But then we need to stop. We need to stop trying to circumnavigate those things that, that only God can do. And we may pray for a while and we may stand there faithfully initially and think, I'll wait for God to move this mountain. And then as things don't go to be seen, the, the plan in our head of how God's going to do it, we start thinking, well, maybe I need to do something. But we need to stop and let God be God. We need to stop and give God opportunity to show his faithfulness to us and to his people. We need to be still. But we need to know uh, that God uh, has you here to glorify himself and to show his faithfulness. We need to know that he's able to deliver us. We need to know that he's able to take care of those things on the other side of the mountain. And how do we know? Well, primarily through scripture. Remember those stones? A reminder to Elimelech that God is faithful to his people. This is why we have the scripture We are to be in scripture, we are to meditate on this word, we are to see when when it it speaks something of God's faithfulness that that, that our heart is aligned with that, don't just read it and take it as 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 a, a fact that's just lodged in our mind somewhere, but examine our hearts, do we trust this God? And if not then ask him, ask him to change your heart. Trust that the God of Scripture is the God that we are going to swing out into eternity. We are swinging out into eternity on Jesus Christ and his righteousness. The the greatest enemy is death and we face that greatest enemy with Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ can deliver us as we've seen he had on the cross, then how can he not more deliver us from all of these other things? But also from Scripture, I believe we need to have an experiential knowledge of God's faithfulness in our own lives. So Psalm 46, 10 to 11 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen.